Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, lead pastor Josh Carstensen continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The book of Ezekiel tells us something that, if it came from anybody but God, would be considered offensive, and that's that God owns our body and soul. Now, if that's true, then God gets to tell us how to live. He gets to decide what happens if you live or don't live the right way. So, what does it mean when God says he owns you? The book of Ezekiel helps us figure it out. This week, read the book of Ezekiel. Also, check out nwhills.com hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. We are, we've been in this book of the Bible, this collection of books, since September. Uh, our church is going through it roughly a book a week, uh, which is a long, long time, right? It's a lot of reading. Um, the invitation is we're going to kind of launch from the book in the Sunday service. So I share, or another preacher will share a little bit about it, and then we'll invite you to read it throughout the week. And uh, we are in a section of scripture that's just dark. Um, it's heavy. Uh, it's a lot. It's, it's the prophets. Um, we're talking about a time period in history that's just the hardest time period for the nation of Israel. We've seen kind of week after week now. Uh, we are, I think, four weeks in. we got four to go. Um, where God is just doing something really challenging uh, in the nation of Israel, but he's doing it for good. And so I promise you, we've got good news coming, like Easter's coming soon. We'll be in the New Testament. So if you're like a, a happy Christian, you, you will appreciate uh, the upcoming months. And if you are a normal human, you will appreciate this section. Um, but there's, there's both and in scripture, like God is real and so we need to be honest about uh, the scripture, and I think it's right and good that we take our time and go through it. And so we are in a really bizarre book today. Um, there are parts of Ezekiel that you read that you're just going to go, huh? Like, is this in the Bible? Um, apparently, there are parts that Hebrews were not allowed to read until they were age 30, because um, it's so graphic. Um, there are also a lot of parts of Ezekiel where there's massive debate about, like, is this just symbolism? Um, is this talking about uh, like the nation of Israel alone? Or is it talking about Christ? Um, is it talking about the New Testament believer? And, and I believe the answer to that is yes. Um, there, there's times when he's talking about both. Um, but that's just for you, for your reading this week. Um, we're going to start out today looking at a really, really harsh reality uh, of something that God says that he owns. Um, As we're doing that, I want us to think for a minute about the outrage um, that our souls go through when someone makes a claim that they own someone else's body, right? It's a weird claim. It's a claim that just is kind of creepy. It's strange. You you think about people who um, are involved in human trafficking, for example, Right? Um, I know uh, multiple people in this room have worked with different organizations over the years to help get people out of that. But the thought that we would steal people and use them for individual gain is, is so disgusting and so disturbing. It's, it's hard to believe it's true. 
right? You ever been at a, um, like at a rest stop somewhere and you're in a bathroom and you're reading the signs and you just, like you, your mind just goes like, how is this a thing? Like, how is this humanly possible? Like, it's so disturbing, it's hard to believe that it's true, right? You look back on some of the history of our nation and around the world, you look at uh, practices of, of human slavery, and you just wonder, like, how is it that people have gone to other countries, have taken people from their homeland and brought them to be slaves for them? Like, how, how does that happen? Again, like, the, the, the whole idea that you would own someone else's body is really disturbing. Um, it's hard to wrap our minds around. You know, you think about the whole um, abortion debate. Um, the whole debate on abortion, both sides agree that bodily autonomy is important, right? Both sides agree with that, right? We, like, we disagree on whether or not we're talking about one person or two persons, right? Because if we're talking about two people, then someone needs to be a voice for the one who can't speak. But, but the heart of it is, and the reason there's so much passion behind it, is bodily autonomy. Like, we believe in that, right? You, you think about um, someone who is an abuse victim, I've spoken to many people over the years who are abuse victims, and, and the thought that someone else would exert their will and power over someone who is, um, let's just say, helpless, is, is beyond disgusting, right? And so you think about how heinous of an evil it is that we would uh, try to control someone else's body uh, and kind of the, the feels that go along with that. Yet today in scripture, we're going to read something where God is going to claim, not only do I own your body, but I own your soul as well. And it's one of those portions of scripture that you read it and quite frankly, like most of our world doesn't like to hear it. Right? I would just encourage you and challenge you uh, if you are having dinner with a friend who is not a Christian um, Maybe don't say this, but think through what this would feel like. You know, you're telling someone like, hey, God owns you. He owns your body and he owns your soul. Like, that's a really weird, strange conversation, is it not? Like, that's a super strange thing. And most people are just going to brush it off and go, well, okay, that's, that's weird that you think that. I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe in your God. Therefore, it's just kind of benign to me and I'm just going to excuse it altogether But the fact that like some people, namely myself and probably most of you, believe that God owns our bodies and souls has a lot of ramification for how we are to live and for how God behaves uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And we're going to kind of open up this section of scripture where God is going to explicitly say, oh yeah, I own you. And because I own you, I get to say, here's the rules on how to live, right? God is the one who gets to say, this is the right way to live. This is the wrong way to live. Um, this is what happens when you live correctly. And this is what happens when you don't. Um, again, like we don't like that. Like the, the autonomous American Western thinker hates the idea that someone has authority over me, over my body. Like I don't like that idea naturally, let alone a God who exists, who is sovereign over all things, who says, Oh yeah, I own your body. So let's go Ezekiel 18. And we're just going to start real quick. Would you stand with me? We're going to read one verse and we're going to wrestle with it as we work through the book of Ezekiel here. 
Here is one of the most offensive words in the Bible. To truly believe this, Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit down. Um, you just said, thanks be to God. Um, that God owns all of our souls and that God says, if you sin, you will die, right? In in this context, and we're going to zoom back here, obviously in a bit and and talk about the context of Ezekiel. He's talking about physical death. Um, He's saying, if you do not obey me, I am literally about to kill you, which again is really unsettling. But he also will say, if not only if you sin, will you physically die, but you will spiritually die forever apart from me in eternity. And that's even more unsettling, right? Because when we think of that, we think of like your average kind of nice person in Corvallis who doesn't necessarily love God, right? Like I think of your average, like earth tone wearing corduroy, like Birkenstock, like really nice front yard garden, like all the things, like really nice Corvallis people, who are just generally good people. And the thought that God's going to say, if you sin, I'm going to kill you. Like, you just go like, that just doesn't, like, that doesn't resonate in my neighborhood. That doesn't resonate in my world. It doesn't really resonate in my workplace. It doesn't really resonate in like my friend group. Like, where, where do I put a scripture like that in my world today? Like, where does that belong? Um, we're going to see where that belongs in the context of Ezekiel, and then hopefully if I do my job well, we'll see where it belongs in the context of today. Um, In the context of Ezekiel, it's also hard to understand because God's going to say, yeah, I own all your souls. um, And if you sin, you're going to die. And it's hard to see how God's good in that, particularly because like I said, we are in one of the darkest periods of human history for the nation of Israel. Um, we are right in the middle of, and I'll zoom out here in the middle, but but in a little bit, but we are in the middle of this nation. We're going to see pre and post fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we're in the same time period that we've been the last three weeks, um, where this nation, uh, this city is surrounded for 18 months. People are starving to death. They're being choked out. This city is surrounded, nothing coming in, nothing going out. And how is God good in that? Like, how is God good in this nation dying out? How is God good in this kind of slave chain that happens coming out of Jerusalem? How is God kind in that? Um, How does God own our souls and and what does this ultimately look like? So we're going to see this. I would encourage you, if you haven't been with us uh, two weeks ago when we went through the book of Jeremiah, I would encourage you go back and re-listen to that podcast because we did our best to kind of lay a framework and a foundation for what was going on in the nation at that time. And I can't do that every week, but it will be really helpful if you kind of see some of that. But I'll give you just a a tad bit of a catch up to where Ezekiel is when God gives him these words. So let's go um, main kings, right? So the nation of Israel You've got Saul, you've got David, then you've got Solomon. And we're talking about this whole period kind of post-Solomon when this nation falls apart, right? And that's where we've been for four weeks. We'll be there for another four weeks pre-Easter, then it'll get happy again. But we're in this period where the nation's divided into two, right? We talked about the Northern Kingdom. We talked about how they absolutely, completely, utterly abandoned God. 
right? Um, we, they built a new capital city. They built a new temple, but that temple was not dedicated to the Lord. It was dedicated to false pagan gods and 19 kings, one of which worshiped God, right? And you have a few different minor prophets speaking to the north. We haven't even talked about that yet. We will get there soon, I promise. Um, Isaiah spoke a little bit to the north, but you've got other prophets speaking to them as well, namely Hosea, Amos, and Micah. So when you read that, you think north, you think Israel. Well, God pleads through these prophets, follow me or I'm going to destroy you. And eventually they're destroyed because they don't follow him. Which again, begs that God, you know, that, that God owns our souls kind of question of like God saying, if you don't follow me, I'll destroy you. And he does. And that nation's gone forever, forgotten. 722, Assyria comes in and they are literally forever destroyed. Once again, God saying, oh yeah, I own your soul and I own your body. And if you do not obey me, this is what will happen. Then we talk about the southern kingdom, and this is where a lot of the prophets spend their time talking about. This is where Isaiah was talking about, and, and Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom, and, and we get some great moments of revival, some exciting moments where God does some incredible things, right? We've got uh, an earlier army surrounded by Sennacherib, and God sends an angel, and 185,000 people are destroyed in an instant, and God's people are like, yes, God, we love you, until we forget you again. Right, and we saw this under Jeremiah, right? What happened under Jeremiah? We get a prophet who comes to the people and he says, guys, like return to the Lord, follow him. If not, Babylon's gonna come in and destroy you. And, and most of the kings say, well, okay, thanks, but no thanks. But one king starts reform, right? Remember this, this king, he started being king at age eight. His name was Josiah. Uh, he, he rediscovers the temple. They clean it out. They find the scroll of Deuteronomy. Most likely they start reading it. People repent, they confess. And, and there's this massive revival in the country and there's a lot of hope and, and a lot of healing and people are excited. And Jeremiah's like, okay, God, thank you, right? You told me that I would like tear down, but you'd build up. It seems like all the tearing down has happened and now you're building up. But then Josiah is killed in battle. Right? Remember the war that happens between Egypt and, and, uh, they're trying to go fight Assyria and they got to walk through Israel. And Josiah's like, no, you can't walk through my land. And, and the king of Egypt, his name's Nico. He's saying, no, no, we don't want to fight you, Israel. And Josiah's saying, oh no, we're going to fight you. You come through our land. And, and Josiah is killed in battle. Right? And this is significant and it's significant for Ezekiel because what happens next? Right? After Josiah is killed in battle, Jeremiah is distraught. It's like, man, I thought we were going somewhere good. They put a new king in there. This king is taken later, three months later, by Egypt, and they put another king in there. Uh, This king is is not a, a worshiper of God by any means. And you fast forward four more years, and you get another battle that takes place. This is the Battle of Carchemish. This time it's between Babylon and uh, Egypt. Babylon wins. They destroy Egypt. And on their way back home to Babylon, they walk right through Jerusalem and they take whoever they want, right? They take the king. They take a little guy named Daniel, who we're going to learn about next week. And they take a 25-year-old by the name of Ezekiel, a young man who was trained to become a priest. You can think of him like a, a young guy in seminary. He's all excited. He's going to be a pastor someday. But Babylon came in took all the dignitaries, took all the noble leaders, took them 900 miles away in chains, and now he's living in a refugee camp. I think this is interesting and it's fascinating that the day that we are introducing our refugee kind of hope and help here in Corvallis is the one book from a refugee camp written by a refugee. It's pretty wild. So here's Ezekiel. 
He's five years in to staying at a refugee camp, 900 miles away from Jerusalem. He's on his 30th birthday, right? This would have been the moment that he would have been inaugurated as a priest back in Jerusalem, but that's not going to happen. He's literally sitting by some muddy canal, crying his eyes out, wondering what life would have been like had Babylon not come in. And here he is, and he's by the side of this canal, and God gives him a vision. That vision is kind of spelled out in chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in Ezekiel chapter 2 and hear what God has to say to Ezekiel. So let's go chapter 2, verse 1. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's been a refugee. He's 30 years old. God speaks to him about what God's going to do to the nation of Israel, both there in captivity and in the place of Jerusalem, which at this point is still a city. This temple's still there, but most of the nobles and dignitaries are gone. Pick it up in verse 1. And he said to me, son of man, uh, son of man is just going to be a name that God refers to Ezekiel in often. He says, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke with me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. So it's pretty cool. Like Ezekiel's hearing the voice of God. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. I think it's interesting. He's not saying to that rebellious nation of Babylon who destroyed you. He's saying, no, to your own people, I am sending you. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also imputed and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, verse five. And whenever they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. So here's Ezekiel, he's sitting on the side of this river, and here's God coming to him saying, hey, you're going to be my mouthpiece. People are not going to hear what you have to say. And your life is going to be miserable. It's marked by three things, he says. Your, mar- your life will be marked by briars, by thorns, and as if you were constantly sitting on scorpions. Now, not exactly the news you want to hear on your 30th birthday. Right? You, you think about what it would be like to hear God, and I'd like to think if, if I heard the audible voice of God, like it would be something awesome. You know, God's saying like, hey, you're, you're going to be my voice piece. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to speak to the nations. Everyone's going to reject you. No one's going to come around, and your life's going to be awful. Like that, not, not exactly what you want to hear from God. Right? And as the story unfolds, his life is going to be really awful. Um, you think about what that would be like today. I mean, it would be like God saying, hey, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to be a missionary and I'm going to send you to Iran and no one is going to follow you. You're not going to receive any converts and you're going to go and you're going to die there and you're going to be quickly forgotten, right? Or or God saying to a young person in seminary, hey, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to lead churches and every church that you lead is eventually going to close its doors because no one's going to come and everything's going to die. Like not exactly like, Where's the growth? Where's the conversion? Where's the excitement? God, like Ezekiel has a horrible life. 
and it's marked with briars and thorns. Um, for the first 25 chapters, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a pretty straightforward chronological book. Um, it's somewhat easy to read in terms of the timeline of history. It's really confusing in terms of allegory and alliteration, uh, namely allegory in a lot of places, but it's straightforward in, times of, uh, in terms of kind of the timeline. So for the first some odd 25 chapters, um, God is going to warn his people. Again, Jerusalem's still standing. Um, they have a puppet king from uh, Babylon, but you've got people still there, and God's going to plead with his people, guys, come back to me. Follow me. And he's going to use Ezekiel in all kinds of super bizarre, really strange tactics to get people's attention. Right? If you've read this story of Ezekiel before, you, you know some of these things. Some of the things like, so he asks Ezekiel, hey, I want you to go uh, in your camp, and I want you to cut off all your hair. And then in some like, weird like, cosplay act, I want you to cut up all your hair and like, throw it different directions. And it's just strange. Right? At one point, God literally asks Ezekiel, I want you to lay on this side on the ground, and I want you to cook your food over feces for over a year. Like, it's super strange. In fact, it's so strange. Like, God literally says, I want you to cook it over human feces. And, and Ezekiel, I don't know the exact conversation because eventually God's like, okay, okay, it can be animal feces. Like, it's so weird. And he's like, the reason why I'm going to ask you to do this is because this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem when your people are surrounded by an army for 18 months. Right? This is going to be the stench of death when rotting corpses are in the city. And he does that. And then after that, he says, now I want you to go on the other side for a year. You're like, really, God? Like, I, I, can I just like eloquently preach to people and watch people get converted and saved? And can we do some church plants? Like, that would be pretty cool. God's like, no, I, I own your body and I own your soul. And I think it's interesting because I think most people, when you hear that, like, I think like if, if I heard that, I'd be like, oh man, I, I don't know, Lord. But I think Ezekiel was a lot like Job. And here's why. I think he saw the Lord, heard him and was like, okay, God, I'm, I have peace because I know that you love me. I've experienced you and I'm going to do what you ask me to do. And that's what happens. Um, let's pick it back up into verse uh, or into chapter 18. And we're going to see more of what God asks of his people. And we're going to see the heart of God where not only is God going to say, hey, I'm going to do this, but he's going to beg over and over and over, honestly, for 900 years. If you love me and obey me, life will go well. I will relent. I will not destroy. But if you forget me, this is what's coming. Chapter uh, 18, verse 4, I'm going to reread what I read earlier. He said, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But then he gives this caveat. If a man is righteous and he does what is just and right, he shall surely live. Right? He makes it clear. If you do the right thing, if you are devoted to justice, if you love the poor, if you love the oppressed, if you see the outcast, if you see the foreigner, if you treat them the way that my heart wants you to, I will relent. And he gives kind of this like uh, invitation of exactly what the, this kind of heart of his is in verses five through nine. And I'm just going to summarize it. This is God's heart for his people of how we are to live. He says, don't worship false gods. Don't take a woman who's not your wife. Don't oppress anyone or take advantage of anyone. Don't rob anyone. Give bread to the hungry. It just makes it super clear, super straightforward. If someone's hungry, feed them. 
Give clothes to the poor. Do not take advantage of the poor. Do what's right. Execute justice between people. Walk in my ways. Keep my laws. Act faithfully. Right? This is the same message that God has given over and over and over all the way back to Moses when he gives the law. And why is that? Because God's creating a people so that the world will experience God's love through that people. But what happens when that very people turn their back and don't love the world like God asked them to? When we do that, God says, no, I'm going to get your attention. And the, the only possible way 900 years in to get your attention is going to be to ultimately destroy you. And so God's heart is never set out to say, obey me today or else you're dead. Like that's not God's heart. God's heart is like, hey, be my heart to the world. And for 900 years, when the people keep refusing, eventually he's going to say, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to recapture your love, recapture your attention and show the world who I am. Verse 30 of chapter 18, after years and years and years of people not obeying, God says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone, according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? This is God saying like, why? I'm giving you an out. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Hear God say that. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Here's Ezekiel's message. Again, he's primarily in a refugee camp in Babylon. He's preaching. He's speaking words going back the 900 miles to Jerusalem. He's saying, guys, follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. Love people like God loves people. And people ignore him and people refuse. And ultimately, God will allow this 18-month siege on the city, and the city will be destroyed. And life for Ezekiel continues to be awful. In chapter 24, God says to Ezekiel, in a really painful way, I, I can't, it's hard to even put yourself there. God says to Ezekiel, he says, um, Ezekiel, I'm about to take your wife. And you're about to experience incredible loss and deep pain. And the reason I'm about to take your wife is because your people are going to experience loss and pain. And I want them to watch your reaction and see what happens when you go through this extreme amount of pain. I pick it up in chapter 24, verse 15. God tells Ezekiel, he says, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you. I mean, even that language is cruel. I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. He continues to say, so I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening, my wife died. Now, let me ask you something. How in the world is this fair? Like, how is this right? Like, how can God say to 30-year-old Ezekiel, who's given his life to try to follow the Lord, how can he say to him, hey, now I'm going to take your wife. Um, and I'm going to take her because I want the world to watch your reaction to her death. Like, how is that good? Like, how, how is it fair to the 10-year-old living in Jerusalem? 
right? He, he doesn't have generations of not following the Lord. Like, how is that fair and how is that right? Where is the justice in that? Right? See, it's not surprising when some people hear about parts of God and they want nothing to do with him. But it's not surprising. You read something like that and you just kind of scratch your head and you're like, God, where? I thought you were this God of love. I thought you were this God of mercy and kindness. Like, what are you doing here? Where's your play? And, and then on top of that, like, I'd love to know, why don't the people repent? Right? I, I mean, clearly, like, if you believed in God to any degree and you were living in this refugee camp, clearly, like, in, in the, like, God loves those uh, who worship him, like, clearly, if that was your mindset and he brought you in exile to Babylon, clearly you would think that God's not happy with you in that moment. So wouldn't you think that you would repent and say, hey, God says he'll relent if we repent. Why wouldn't they do that? I'll tell you why. The same reason most of our town doesn't repent. So they don't believe that God's real. Right, it's pretty straightforward, and what we're going to see over and over and over in this text is people do not believe that God exists. And if you don't believe that God exists, why would you heed any instruction to repent? Like, it doesn't make sense. Of course you wouldn't. Therefore, what we're going to see in the book of Ezekiel in the destruction of Jerusalem is God saying, hey, I'm going to show the world that I exist. And ultimately, in the destruction of Jerusalem, behind it all is a heart that God's saying, I'm showing you that I am God. And let's pick it up and see how he does that. At this point, the city is destroyed. Um, the 18-month siege has already happened. So that happens in the middle of the book of Ezekiel. And you get a fugitive who escapes. And he has this interesting conversation with Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is going to explain, here's why God did what he did. Here's God's heart. Chapter 33, verse 25. You lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? So here's God saying, how can you live however you want and then assume that God's going to bless you? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations. Each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? You think you can just live however you want and God's going to be for you? Say this to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword and whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. Verse 28, and I will make the land a desolation and a waste and her proud might shall come to an end and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Verse 29, and this is key if you're underline or underline this, then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. Write that phrase right there. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's repeated uh, word for word 18 times in the book of Ezekiel. Right, More than 60 times this verse is manipulated in different phrases. Ultimately, God's saying, I'm going to do whatever is necessary, including the destruction of the people that I love, in order to get the attention of the people to say that I exist, that I am real, and that to obey me is to fully live. Not only that, but I'm going to do whatever it takes, including giving Ezekiel a miserable life, including taking his wife. Man, so going through all this, why don't we change our hearts? 
right? Why don't they, like when God says repent, why don't they do it, right? For 900 years, going back from Moses all the way through the times of the judges, if you've been with us, you've seen this cycle over and over and over. Why don't they just follow the Lord consistently, teach it to their kids, right? First hour, we had child dedication, Right? We had a couple families up here with young kids, and we're talking about as parents, this is what we're going to do to raise up our kids in the Lord. Why don't those kids always grow up to love the Lord? Right? Why doesn't that always happen over and over and over? Ultimately, it doesn't happen because we have hearts that want what our hearts want, and that's not always what God wants. We have hearts that rebel, and so when God says, hey, put a new heart in you, put a new spirit in you, the primary message of the Old Testament is you and I can't. We can't. Like, I cannot do that. Like, when God's speaking to this nation and he's saying, obey me, put a new heart in you, the primary message of the book of Ezekiel is we can't. I can't just decide on my own that I want to be good. I can't just make this decision in my flesh that I'm going to love God and follow him because in my flesh, I've got a war against God that says, no, I want to be the king. I don't want him to be the king. And so what we get in the whole second half of the book of Ezekiel is what God does when he says, you're right, you can't, but look what I can do for you. I can give you a new heart and I can give you a new spirit. And when you get a new heart and a new spirit, you're resurrected, you have a new life, and then you will follow me because I own you and I've given you new life, right? Check it out. Here's what God says about giving us a new spirit in verse 22 of chapter 36. Here's God saying, I will do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And here's where I hope we get a little bit of hope. Therefore, say this to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, right, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Basically, he's saying, you were my viceroys to the world. You failed miserably. People are going to think that I'm bad. Now watch as I do something incredible with your dead soul. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I, I, verse 26, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You are not a great witness for me. Therefore, watch as I will be a great witness for myself in rescuing a people who have rebelled against me. How beautiful is that? So the story of the Old Testament, which carries on to the gospel, is that God's people are God's people because God rescues them, not because we choose to obey him, right? And he gives this super clear, vivid image of what this looks like in chapter 37. And I'm going to read this as we pray it out here. But ultimately, he's going to talk about this vision of seeing this valley of dead, dry bones. And this vision is just like, there is no life here. Right? You think like elephant graveyard. Everything is dead, dying. Like there's no hope for resurrection. 
And in the middle of that, God's going to say, watch as I breathe life into this. Watch as I do something new because that's who I am. So ultimately, as we close it up, I'm just going to ask one question. If God owns my body and he owns my soul, right? I've only got two choices of what to do with that. Either A, rebel against that truth and live however I want which ultimately leads to a life of dry bones and deadness and loss and grief and heartache and sorrow. When you live in rebellion to how God's called you to live, that life is miserable on this side of eternity and it's even worse on the next side. But if you recognize that God owns you, that through Christ's death on the cross, he gives you a new spirit, a new heart, then you're absolutely free. Right? You're free to, to not worry about all the stress of everything because it's not dependent upon you anymore. We're free to say everything that I have is his and I can live a certain way. And so for us, like for a lot of us who've made that decision, who have a new heart, like are we living that way? Right? And where in your life do I need to live as if my life isn't mine, as if my body isn't mine? Right? For some of us, that may be like, hey, how do I get involved in this whole refugee thing? Because that's not easy, I promise you. Right, I, I've had um, international students living in my home for some, probably about seven years. Right, having other people in your home is not easy. Right, but it's worth it when God says, "I want you to love the outsider." Right, Brian and Barb, right here, they're going to Africa, God willing, in a couple of days here. Right, they've got a sweet organization loving on kids who don't have families, who don't have support. That's not easy. Right, but it's worth it. Because your body's not yours, it's the Lord's, your soul's not yours, right? I I can look around and I can look at so many people, right? I can see Natalie who's just taught this great class, like that's not easy, that's hard to teach, right? But that's her saying like, hey God, my time is your time, right? It's it's not my body, it's not my soul, I'm going to do with it whatever you want me to do. And if you want me to do this, I'll do this. Right? I think of Hillary just speaking a couple weeks ago, like that's her saying, God, not your will but mine, I will do this. Right? I can look around in story after story after story. I can see hearts of people saying, God, my body is not mine. Therefore, I will do what you want me to do. I'm going to close it out in reading just what I think is a beautiful chapter of chapter 37. And hear God bringing life to us. And yes, this is for the nation of Israel. And yes, I believe it's for us. So band, come on up while I read this and we're going to pray through it. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Right, that's you and I, this is our bones. And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and I, and will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling noise, and the bones came together bone to bone, and I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. 
Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breathe from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and my hope is gone. We were cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle in your land. Then you will know that I, I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. Sovereign God, let us hold on to the beautiful and hard truth that you own us, that you created everything, and that includes me, my wife, my kids, my family, every person in this room, you own us, and you invite us, hey, come live with me, come live with the king, come live in my kingdom, or rebel against me. The consequences are set before us. God, help us to live for your kingdom. Jesus, thank you for your death, which gave me that new spirit. God, apart from you, I would not choose you. But you gave me a new heart and a new spirit, and through that, now I can live. Lord, thank you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.